0: good morning. Great to be with you. I don't know if this thing is on straight. Sorry, Namath. It's going to be, a, it's going to be an ongoing problem here. Great to be with you all this morning. Uh, such a joy to, to see uh, most of you, uh, most parts of you. And I'm glad to be back. And I'm glad to be, uh, uh, I've been here every week, but uh, I've been speaking to that camera. And it's great to be able to uh, speak to you and to uh, just to, to be together with you as we come uh, together for worship this morning. We are back in our um, sermon series on the Gospel of Mark this morning. And uh, so I would invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn in it to Mark chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the, uh, the the text printed. I think it's in the order of worship. It'll also be um, on the screen. Uh, and we are... Let me orient you just a little bit to where we are in Mark, as we, we were not here last week. Um, the, 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 the larger context is that Jesus had sent his 12 disciples out on a mission, uh, a mission to preach the gospel to the people in Israel. And when they came back from that, Jesus wanted to debrief with them, he wanted to give himself and his disciples an opportunity to rest and to get rejuvenated. He also wanted to uh, hear from them and to teach them regarding what they experienced and what they learned uh, uh, on their mission. And every time they try to go somewhere to get some rest, they run into trouble. They run into people or they run into opposition. And so here, Jesus has decided, you know what? We're just going to get out of Israel altogether. And we're going to go to a whole different place. We're going to go to Tyre, uh, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. So it's like all the way across of Israel and north, and it's like it, it's in Gentile territory. And there, Jesus and his disciples are going to get some much needed rest. But of course, that's not what happens. So let's read and see what d- did happen. And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. And he said to her, "'Let the children be fed first.' For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you allow us to eat bread from your table, and you are allowing us to do that this morning by considering your words to us through your scriptures. We pray, Father, that we would do that faithfully and that you would feed us as we need to be fed. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, late May, uh, getting ready to kind of go into June here pretty soon, and I'll tell you something. I miss baseball. Y'all miss baseball? I'm so much missing baseball. Have you ever been to a baseball game and gone early enough to a baseball game to actually watch batting practice? Batting practice is amazing because you realize how strong and how amazing these athletes are. When somebody throws a, a ball right down the middle of the plate at the perfect speed to just be crushed by an amazing professional baseball player, it's unbelievable to watch. And you know what else I like watching after that? It's when the, when the players after batting practice come off of the field and they're getting ready for their final preparations for the games. There's this throng of people by the dugout, right? They're all trying to get these autographs. And there are all kinds of people there. There are kids who just really want the autograph of their hero, right? And then there are these adults who are trying to get a bunch of autographs to put these baseballs on eBay. And then there are the really... Sinister adults who are taking baseballs from kids, are giving baseballs to kids and saying, hey, you give them the, get this autograph and I'll give you $5 and then they'll take the baseball and then they'll sell it on eBay. And the players get a little bit cynical and jaded by this, right? And so you can tell in this autograph hunt that they're scanning. They're trying to find the people to give autographs to that really want the autographs. I think that Jose Altuve, I've actually watched him do this, I feel like Jose Altuve has a sixth sense about him, that he can actually spot the kid who really, really wants the autograph because he wants Jose Altuve's autograph. There's a gleam in this kid's eye, right? And I think that Jose Altuve can spot it because he has the same gleam in his eye. He plays baseball with that gleam. You know, certainly he had it. As a kid, he's, he's looking for the kid who's, who's not getting pushed out of the way by the adults, but, you know, who's just really, really wants Jose Altuve to sign his baseball for him to keep as a treasured memento. It's humble, but persistent. Now, I'm going to transition here rather awkwardly from Jose Altuve to God, and I do not believe that Jose Altuve is God. Uh, but you can draw some comparisons between autograph seekers at baseball games and the ways in which people in our city and our culture approach God. I think some, a lot in our culture, they don't approach God at all. They, 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 God's just irrelevant to their lives, He means nothing to them. I do think that this kind of moment that we live in where mortality, uh, if not experienced, at least uh, having kind of been brought more to the fore, may make people question that a little bit more than they did previously. But, you know, I think that some people in our city live with this kind of ancient conception of God, that God is just mad all the time. And he's he's mad and he has to be uh, appeased by you in some way. Uh, so if you do enough stuff, maybe God will accept you. But the problem is, you'll never know. You'll never know if you did enough stuff. Your your hope is that you can just do enough stuff, and one day God's not going to be mad at you anymore. A lot of people in our culture think about God more like a force of energy, just something to be tapped into. You know, kind of at any moment, in any way, under your own, uh, you know, sort of. Um, the only way, the way that you want to do it. He demands nothing from you. It's not personal in any way. Those are kind of non-religious ways to think about God. But, you know, I think that even religious people, even people in our city who would identify themselves as Christians may struggle with questions about how to approach God. Some approach God with a sense of entitlement. Look, God, I've been really good. I have been really, really good. Now, if not compared to, you know, to, to some other Christians, look, at least to those people out there, have you seen how bad they are? They're really bad, God. And I have been better than them, so you owe me. You owe me because I've been good for you. But on the other end of that spectrum, a 180-degree difference from that are those who see themselves only in a self-loathing way not in humility, but in a self-hatred where you can't possibly think that God would ever receive you under any circumstance whatsoever, that God would only be disgusted by you, that he would only send you away. He won't give you the time of day, so why even bother coming to him at all? I think that the story of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7 shows us a different way. This story has a ton of unexpected twists and turns, but at its root, it shows us the magnificent grace of Jesus Christ responding to a humble faith, a humble faith. And it is that humble faith that I want us to consider this morning. We know from many of Jesus' interactions in all of the Gospels that Jesus responds to humble faith. That's what he responds to we see it again in verse 29 where he says for this statement the demon has left your daughter the statement that Jesus is referring to is his this this humble confession of faith in him now it's a humble faith that is purposely set in this narrative where it is for a reason you, you see, it is no accident that Mark puts this story of this Gentile woman, this irreligious, non-Jewish woman, right in the spot where it is. Because what has just happened? Well, his disciples are constantly confused about who Jesus is. The religious leaders from Jerusalem, the story right before this, are completely in opposition to who Jesus is. And here is this woman, this non-Jewish, this Gentile woman, Who expresses faith. In fact, don't miss this, this is important. This is the first parable. It's a short parable there in verse 27, but this is the first parable of Jesus that he tells that he does not have to explain and somebody understands. And who is it? Not a disciple, not a Jewish leader, but a Gentile woman. From a macro-biblical perspective, this event is highly significant because it is this woman who responds in faith. The gospel is breaking its bounds. It's going out into the world. It begins right here with this Syrophoenician woman. But the question I want us to focus on this morning is this. What can we learn about humble faith from God's word? And I think there are two things. First, a humble faith admits your need. A humble faith admits your need, and second, a humble faith receives Christ's provision. So a humble faith admits your need. Now this scene, as we talked about a little bit earlier, takes place in the region around the city of Tyre. Tyre is a long way from the place where Jesus had previously been doing his ministry, which was near the Sea of Galilee. Tyre is actually on the Mediterranean Sea. So he crossed a whole lot of country to get to this place. He wanted to be there because he was trying to get away. uh, the, the, The first verse here tells us that he went into a house and he was trying to keep it a secret. He wanted to rest. He wanted to recoup. He wanted to regroup with his disciples. He wanted to teach them. But it was not to be. Because what happens? A woman... A Syrophoenician, which means someone of that region, which is on the border of Palestine and Syria. It is Jewish-held territory, I mean Gentile-held territory. It is not Jewish territory. She hears of his presence there, and she goes to him. Now, nobody in the gospel narratives has less going for them than this woman with respect to the possibility in the first century of finding an audience with a respected Jewish rabbi. Culturally and religiously speaking, she had only strikes against her. Only strikes. She was a woman. And rabbis, respected rabbis, were not supposed to interact with women in this manner. She was a Gentile woman, which made her unclean, and her touching Jesus would have made him unclean. She was a Gentile woman from a region that was historically hostile to the Jews. The famous Jewish historian Josephus once pronounced the city of Tyre our infamous enemies. She was a Gentile woman from a region that was historically hostile to the Jews, that was a city that was infamous even in the first century for its crazy pagan worship and its crazy lifestyles. Tyre was like the Las Vegas of of, of Palestine, of that land. It was just like anything goes there, anything and everything. It was like everything was wide open. She was a Gentile woman from a region that was historically hostile to the Jews that was infamous at that time for its pagan worship practices, whose daughter was possessed by a demon. And that forces the question, right? What must be going on in that house that makes it hospitable to a demon? That's who comes to Jesus. Who was this woman? Well, some of y'all are going to understand this. This woman was a mom, right? She was a mom. There are heroes, there are superheroes, and there are moms. And when a daughter of a mom is suffering and struggling religious and cultural convi- you know conventions of the day how much do those matter zero a mom's going to run through a brick wall if she can help her daughter who is struggling and fortunately this woman came to the one Jewish rabbi who had about the same amount of regard for cultural and religious convention as she did, which is not very much. She came to Jesus. So she barges into the house. She falls down at the feet of Jesus, grabs his feet, begins to sob, and begins to beg him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You can see this picture, right? She's begging she's pleading she's sobbing it's a troubling situation she's a gentile the disciples recognize very quickly the awkward position that Jesus is in there's a companion passage to this in Matthew chapter 15 and in Matthew chapter 15 the disciples start telling everybody to send this woman away this gentile woman is making Jesus unclean send her away well he doesn't send her away He actually does the unspeakable. He speaks to her. Now, there are a couple of ways to read this story. If you were a first century reader of this story, Jewish rabbi, Jesus, Gentile woman, Syrophoenician, you know, grabbing his feet, begging him, the only imaginable words that you could hear coming out of the mouth of Jesus are these Stop touching me. You're making me unclean. Go away. Those are the only acceptable first century words that he could have said. Now we're reading this story right in the 21st century, in 20th century Houston. We're reading it from our perspective. We're seeing the sobbing woman at the feet of Jesus. We're seeing her beg Jesus to heal her daughter. What do we think she, he's going to say? We think Jesus is going to say, "Hey, don't cry." It's going to be fine. Of course I'm going to heal your daughter. What else would I do? I'm Jesus. Of course I'm going to heal her. It's going to be fine. Well, as usual, Jesus does neither of these things. He actually says this. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How incredibly rude. It's so rude, right? I mean, isn't that just, doesn't that just kind of make you cringe inside? like, no, Jesus, you didn't say that. That's kind of, that's how I read this. Like, no, man, not that. But that's what he said. And it's a parable. And in order to understand this parable, you have to understand what these characters stand for. The children are the people of Israel. Jesus came first to the people of Israel, the companion passage in Mark In Matthew chapter 15, uh, Jesus actually says this out of his mouth. I came first to the lost sheep of Israel, not to you. Um, The bread is the message of the kingdom. It is the gospel. The bread is the good news that the Messiah has come and that you are able to enter into the kingdom of God by submitting yourself to the rule and the reign of Jesus by faith. Dogs, and, and here's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable, dogs are Gentiles, That is the way that Jews actually did refer to Gentiles at that time. And the word dog is usually used in the Bible in a derogatory manner. It's not like my dog. My dog is cute, but this is not how this word is usually used. It's usually used more like a a stray kind of mongrel dog that comes out at night and survives on, uh, on, on scraps and refuse. Oh dear, I can't believe that Jesus just said this. But he does soften it by using the word in Greek that refers to a, a diminutive dog, a small dog. It could be a puppy, maybe even a domesticated animal and not like a street mongrel. But he does use one word that is actually the key to unlocking this entire parable. It's the hint kind of that he kind of holds out there and to see if this woman is going to grab hold. It's the key that he kind of holds to see if she'll take and unlock the door and she does take it. Do you know what that word is? That word is first. That's the key word. The key word is first. Let the children be fed first. He does not say let the children be fed only. Let the Jewish people be fed exclusively. Let them be fed first. And the implication is if they are fed first, there is food left over for others and the woman gets it she sees the crack in the door and she enters but she enters in humbly admitting her need yes lord she says yes lord yes i'm a dog yes lord even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs what an amazing thing to say What would you and I say if somebody said that to us? If somebody called us a dog, what would we say? Dog? You called me a dog? I'll show you a dog. I'm not a dog. You're a dog. You know, that's kind of what we would say. We would go immediately into defensive mode. We would justify ourselves in that moment. But she does not do that. She does not disagree with him. She doesn't insult him back. She basically says, you're right. You're right about me. That's who I am. Go ahead. I don't deserve it. Feed the children first. But whatever there is that is left over that comes from your hand, even that's enough for me. Even that is transformative for me. You see... She gets it. She gets something amazing here. She gets something that the, the Jewish leaders don't get. She gets something that the disciples don't get. She gets a major biblical point here. Jesus did come to Israel first, and he came to the rest of the world second. The Apostle Paul's clear about this in the very first chapter of the book of Romans. The gospel is first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles, Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew commissions his disciples to take the Gospel to all the world. But right now, their key focus is on the people of Israel, on the Jews. But here Jesus is saying there's really good news here because the good news of Jesus Christ is that this good news, this Gospel, is not exclusive. It's not only for the Jews. It's inclusive. It's for the Jews first. But it's also for the world it's for you if you admit your need and come to Jesus in humble faith amazing and it leads to a question how do you approach Jesus I think many of us come to Jesus if he, like he's an elected public servant and we're one of his constituents right I elected you Jesus I, I voted for you I voted for you Savior and Lord of my life Now, what's in it for me? I deserve whatever it is that I can get from you. I want what I want, and you need to give it to me because I'm me. You know, I heard something in a sermon when I was in college that I probably should have heard earlier than that, and maybe somebody said it, but I didn't. But it was, like, transformative to me. You know, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he is telling them that the Holy... He's telling that Pentecost, which by the way we're going to celebrate next week. He's telling the Pentecost is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a very famous and familiar passage of Scripture. Every time I had heard it previous to that, whoever it was talking about it had simply applied it to me and to that, to that moment in my life. You know, so that means that when you talk about Jesus, first do it like with your family and with your immediate neighborhood and then do it in your city, and then maybe go out into the country, and then maybe go out all into the world and tell people about Jesus. Perfectly valid application of that passage, but it's a secondary application. The primary application of that passage is it should remind us, you and me, who exactly we are. Because do you know who you and I are in Acts 1 verse 8? We're not Jerusalem, we're not Judea, or Samaria, we are the ends of the earth. We're the ends of the earth. We're like, Houston, Texas was like unknown pagan, you know, uh, land in the first century, right, To, 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 to those who were conceiving of it. It's not like we... It's not like we are today. We're the ends of the earth. We are those people that Jesus is so gracious to engraft us into the branch of Israel. We were like dead sticks that he super glued on to the branch of Israel. and We became alive. And we're sharing as Gentiles. We're sharing in, in, in in the amazing promises that God has given to his people. We're sharing in that. We're sharing in that. Do you understand that about yourself? Do you understand that about all of America? Do you understand that about Christians in America? Because I think that sometimes I automatically think of myself and we automatically think of ourselves as kind of like the apple of God's eye. Because we live in America, or better yet, we live in Texas, right? And we're just not as bad as other people. But the first step in grasping the true grace of Jesus is owning your need for Jesus. That if he had not come in his grace to us, even to people like us, we would forever be lost and apart from him. It is a humble faith. And finally, the second aspect of a humble faith is receiving Christ's provision it's not enough simply to live in humility because living in humility can lead you only into self loathing. Whereas you just think of yourself as someone that Jesus, you, you are someone who is so far off that Jesus could never reach you, he could never change you. But that is his specialty. That is what he delights in doing. And that is what he does to all who come to him in a humble faith. Just receive his provision. He says to this woman, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left. Your daughter. Matthew in his account of this story expresses it even more strongly. He says, great is your faith. I mean, he's like, "I, I have not experienced faith like this in all of Israel, Jesus says. Your daughter is healed. Do you see that? This pagan, or it's probably more proper to say this previously pagan woman, understood the grace that Jesus was offering and she simply opened herself to it and gobbled it up she was not clouded you see by religious tradition what religious tradition right she was not clouded by self righteousness I know I'm not good She was not clouded by what we would call kind of cultural Christianity. You know, she was not deluded at all into thinking that her heritage somehow made her uh, pleasing or acceptable to God. She just said, you're right, I'm a dog, I don't deserve anything, but if you just give me a scrap, that'll be all that I need. It'll change everything. And everything changed. Now, even though her answer was great, it was not her answer that provided salvation for her daughter it was the grace of Jesus. We don't know exactly when the demon came out of her daughter. Actually, it's left unspoken or left unsaid. God, Jesus simply poured his grace out upon her because that's what he does. One of the films that I have watched, of, like Taylor said, of the many over the past couple of months is Just Mercy. Which is the film adaptation of the book of the same name, which was written by Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is a civil rights lawyer who lives in Montgomery, Alabama. And he founded and still directs the Equal Justice Initiative, whose mission is to provide vigorous legal representation to people who would not afford it and would not normally get that level of high-quality legal representation, particularly those who are already imprisoned, uh, those who are in appeals, those who are on death row and need that advocacy. Just Mercy tells the story through the eyes of one particular case. is the wrongful conviction of a man named Walter McMillan who was on death row for a murder in South Alabama that he did not commit. And the story of Stevenson's representation of McMillan is inspiring. His defense is tenacious. It's persistent. It's bold. It's unrelenting. It's completely annoying and irritating and frustrating to all of the traditional power structures in South Alabama that have been in play for you know, over a century. But here's something interesting about Bryan Stevenson. He could have done anything. A black man with a degree in hand from Harvard Law School. He could have gone to Manhattan. He could have gone to Washington, D.C. He could have settled into corporate practice. He could have mounted legal defenses for corporate clients who could have paid him handsomely for his expertise. Instead, he moved to Montgomery, Alabama. He founded a nonprofit and he began to represent clients that could not pay him at all. There's humility in that. But there's also boldness in that, right? And there's also persistence in that. A bold faith in Jesus is actually a humble faith. But it is also persistent. Jesus invites you to come to him, not leaning on your own merit. You have none. I have none. But leaning wholly on his, he has all. And he will receive you. He will pour his grace out upon you. He will walk with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for receiving us. Thank you for receiving all who come to you in humble yet bold faith. Please do receive us. Please do walk with us today and every day. We ask it in your name. Amen. Please stand.